Good afternoon, everyone. Once again, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I always, I do enjoy hearing uh, the warm conversation between our guests, and it's our, it's our privilege to be able to bring everybody together, not only to hear uh, remarks from our guests, but also to be able to connect and reconnect with one another. So welcome once again, and good afternoon. Now I would ask you to please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers. I would like to thank Rogers TV, who will broadcast this in the days to come, and also like to thank Media Events CA, Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming today's event. Again, my name is Danny Asaf, and I have the privilege of serving as the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto for this season, and the pleasure of being your host this afternoon. For over 119 years, the Canadian Club has been proud to provide Canadians with this closely guarded, non-partisan platform for the free and open exchange of ideas to the issues that impact our daily lives. Through our programs and events, including our youth and young leaders programs, our diversity partnerships, our joint events, and our media and social media opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic, political, social, and business figures from abroad and right here at home. And before I take the opportunity to introduce today's guest speaker, I would ask you just for a brief indulgence to, to let you know about a couple of upcoming events. On May 27th, we will be hosting Brian Ferguson, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Synovus Energy, and he will share his thoughts on the oil sands industry and its role in addressing climate change. And on May 31st, we will be hosting Isidore Sharp to award him with the Canadian Club's Lifetime Achievement Award. To order tickets or learn more about our events, please visit us at canadianclub.org. And also you can join the conversation via Twitter at CDNCLBTO. I would also like to take a moment to express our thanks and gratitude to today's event sponsorship, Deloitte. Thank you very much. Again, as a not-for-profit organization, we're grateful to our sponsors who allow us to be able to put on these events for you like today. Today's topic and today's speaker are things and people we want to hear from. There's a lot of talk today, as we see on the federal scene, for example, with the budget and talk about critical public infrastructure. And there is no doubt that a key component of our infrastructure is also held in private hands. And that infrastructure today that we're going to discuss is the telecommunications, the internet, and the cable business. There is nothing more vital to our cultural diversity and being able to understand one another than having access to information about ourselves and about the world. And also there's nothing more vital to our productivity today and the future than our communications industry and how we continue to be a productive, robust, and strong global economy. When we look at Kojako and we look at its history, it started approximately 60 years ago today, and it was founded by Henri O'Day when he acquired his first license from the CRTC. 
And since then, it has marked important milestones. The first cable company to offer high-speed internet access to its customers. And also, more recently, in expanding to the United States with its Atlantic broadcast and and, uh, acquisition and MediaCast acquisition, I believe, more recently. So a true leader in terms of this established and leading industry in Canada going abroad, both in North America and in Europe. And today, it now counts among 4,600 employees here and around the world and recently surpassed a milestone of of revenues of over $2 billion. A great success story. And leading this vision for Kojiko is Louis O'Day, the the company's president and chief executive officer since 1993. During his 35-year career, he has led the drive to establish it as a leader in the telecommunications sector. He has a Harvard MBA and has overseen the strategic acquisitions across the telecommunications industry for Kojiko, including those recent expansions into the United States, which started in 2012. And this year, it has unveiled a unifying brand as it sets its sights for further growth. While Mr. O'Day has spent time focusing on building this telecommunications leader, he has not shirked from his duties to the community and remained a leader in the community. He was a member of the Fondation du Centre d'Hospitalier de la Université de Montréal Capital Campaign Cabinet. He also served as president of the Old Brewery Mission Foundation's fundraising campaign. He is a recipient of the Order of Canada and he has served on a long list of distinguished boards, which include the Canadian Cable and Telecommunications Association, Clerica, L'Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal, the uh, Collège Jean de Brebeuf, the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, and the Council on Canadian Unity. It is now my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest of honour, Mr. Louis O'Day, President and CEO of Kojiko. What a kind, generous introduction. (laughs) Thank you. Hopefully you won't be disappointed. (laughs) Mr. Chairman, Mr. Minister Flynn, distinguished guests at the head table, dear friends of the Canadian Club of Toronto, good day, welcome, and thank you for having made the choice to be here today. I'd like to take this opportunity before we get going to underscore the presence among us today of Mr. Nicholas Remiar, who is a President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Economic Forum. And he's accompanied today by Councillor Michael Thompson, as well as Mr. Alan Odette, who happened to be on his advisory board. And as you know, the Toronto Global Forum is scheduled to be held September 12th to 14th of this year, and I'm delighted to mention that Kojiko Pier 1 will be the presenting partner this year 
presenting partner of this world-class conference. Gentlemen, thank you for having joined us today. It's an immense pleasure to be here with you to talk about the long-term vision of COGECO and share a few thoughts about a number of issues of domestic and international policy that are of importance for Canada. Today I'll start with the evolution of COGECO, our team's vision for the company, its shareholders, its future, its 4,600 employees. We will then address the innovation and productivity gaps that regrettably plague our country, and we will conclude on the role of Canada, our blessed country, on the international scene. Let us begin with Kojiko's strategy. Today we are witnessing a phenomenon without precedent in the communications world. Every month, 72.4 exabytes of data transit around the globe. For reference, for those who forgot their basic math, an exabyte is 10 exponent 18. And that traffic is growing at the rhythm of 23% per year. And I will remind you, for comparison purposes, that it is estimated that five megabytes is all the spoken word that has been spoken by the human race up to this point in time. So that's all, that makes for a lot of data. Kojiko, who are here, I'm sorry, Cisco, who are here today and who produced this study, tell us that this will go on for a long time, and I will add that this will go on for decades. As households consume more online entertainment, as they store their personal data on the cloud, as companies perfect increasingly complex algorithms to predict demand for their, what their customers will buy or fine-tune their supply chain and their delivery chain, the amount of data will explode even further. And it's going to compound inexorably. This is powerful testimony to the interconnectedness of our world. It's accompanied by another trend. More and more companies are reaching the conclusion that owning their own data center is too expensive, makes no economic sense, and is in fact not part of their core competencies. At to date, about 25% of companies worldwide have reached this decision, the leaders being in North America, followed by Europe and Asia. So these are two fundamental trends that are driving all the activities of the Kojiko group of companies, including in particular Kojiko Communications, Inc., a public company. Let us look at how exactly. Kojiko Communications broadband subsidiaries, Kojiko Connection and Atlantic Broadband, transfer data primarily from our residential customers and our small business customers. Kojiko Pier 1, our information, communications, and technology subsidiary transfers and stores data for our large business customers. In the residential sector, we are privileged to serve 750,000 cable customers in Ontario and Quebec through our subsidiary, Kojiko Connections. We also serve 250,000 customers 
through our subsidiary in the United States, Atlantic Broadband, where we have recently acquired a cable system for $200 million U.S. in Connecticut. And we are present in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, South Carolina, and Florida. We've been present in the United States since 2012, and this has been a great investment for our shareholders and has brought new life to the growth of our company. In the U.S. cities we serve, penetration of the services that we offer, video, internet, phone, is underpenetrated. So, of course, this means tremendous growth opportunity for us as we look into the future. Our current infrastructures are based on high-density fiber optic networks that are pushed deep into the networks in the neighborhoods that we serve. This means that we're able to deliver to 92% of our customers 120 megabit per second service as a matter of normal business. And in some areas, actually, we're at 250 megabits per second right now. And we have all the proper investments now as we get ready to follow our customers when they ask us for one gigabit per second service when that becomes a reality. All this is in addition to our competitive wireline telephony services and our very high quality video services, thanks in particular to the TiVo platform, which we adopted in 2013 in the United States and 2014 in Canada. TiVo is without doubt one of the most highly developed video platforms in the world today. The feedback from our customers is that TiVo has literally transformed their viewing experience and that they would not give it up at any cost. Here's why. TiVo's powerful search engine allows our customers to scan available content, whether on our linear video service, on our on-demand service, on the things that they have stored on their TiVo one terabyte storage capacity machine, or on the open internet with things like YouTube or Netflix, so, to name only a few. So our customers actually scan, pick, choose, view, whatever they want, and they can record up to six shows simultaneously on their TiVo box. In fact, content is transferable from one television set to the other, and content is manageable and viewable both on the tablet and on the smartphone. The TiVo system will actually, based on past viewing habits in the home, decide on its own to record things that people forgot to tell, tell it to, to record. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Another interesting asset of the TiVo strategy is that it incorps, incorporates video viewing over the top into the viewing experience, thus making over the top an ally as opposed to a competitor. On March 1st of this year, we introduced our smaller video packages uh, to accommodate customers, including the so-called skinny basic as well as smaller packages and a la carte offers. These a la carte offers, which were due only December 1st, but we decided it would be a good idea to start doing it now. We're comfortable doing this because we know that if we don't give our customers what they want, 
They will find it somewhere else. So we are prepared to give them what they want. We are confident today that customers who want to choose fewer channels and pay less can do so, while we have the ability to make sure that we maintain our absolute EBITDA margin in the interest of being able to make investments. And I'll get back to that in a second. We're looking to buy other independent U.S. cable companies, of which there are a good number available at reasonable prices, which regrettably is no longer the case in Canada. It goes without saying that we will proceed with discipline and rigor and determination. I'm sure you've gathered that our fiber optic infrastructure is already extensively built out and has been, in fact, for many years, even though some of our competitors are claiming title to it. As a result, the inf this infrastructure generates superior financial returns for our shareholders. That is not necessarily the case for our competitors. The telephone companies who continue to invest heavily, despite the fact that Verizon has clearly demonstrated in the United States that that strategy does not earn an appropriate return. And I would add that some of our competitors are more concerned right now with contesting the rules of the game in court, uh, which is far from serving the best interest of customers. But I will close that critical parenthesis and move on. <laughs> Turning now to our business customers, in 2008, we decided to move into serving large and medium-sized businesses. Gradually, through various acquisitions and build-outs, we put together our Kojiko Pier 1 subsidiary, which operates high-density fiber networks that are deployed deeply into Toronto and the, into the greater Toronto area and the greater Montreal area, and they are devoted to the carriage of huge amounts of data for our large and medium-sized business customers. Of course, our subsidiary, Kojiko Connection, also provides fiber facilities to interconnect all of this from Windsor to the lower St. Lawrence, the corridor in which 60% of Canadians reside. Thanks in part to our 2013 acquisition of Pier 1 Hosting, we have built a network of data centers which we have rationalized from 21 to 17. And today they total some 400,000 gross square feet of hosting capacity. And in September 8, on September 18th, we inaugurated a brand new 100,000 gross square feet data center uh, in Kirkland, a suburb of Montreal. The eventual total investment of this decision will be in excess of $100 million. And that goes a long way towards confirming the confidence that we have in this industry. Our 17 data centers are located in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and through them we actually give other companies access to the Northern European market, the North American market, Central American and South American markets, including through 50 points of presence, one of which we just opened in Mexico City about a month ago. We host major corporations who come to us 
and entrust us with hosting and preserving their data in highly secure environments. Other companies come to us to store their business applications and, and put their e-business applications uh, on our infrastructure, taking advantage of the full network of data centers as opposed to picking one dedicated location. So we host customers from all over the world that come from Europe, China, India, Russia, Asia, all over the world. Looking now at our media operations, they are 100% held by Kojiko Inc., also a public company, which happens to hold the controlling stake in Kojiko Communications, of which I've been speaking uh, for the last few minutes. Uh, Kojiko Media operates 13 radio stations in the province of Quebec, and it operates the leading radio stations, 98.5 FM, Rhythm FM, CKOI, The Beat, all market leaders in Montreal. Kojiko Media generates sales of $100 million annually and generates uh, a dynamic contribution for the economy of Montreal and the province of Quebec. Moving on now to other subjects. Kojiko was a major beneficiary of the Quebec Stock Savings Plan, which enabled us to complete our first public offering in 1985, when our sales were only $20 million. Today, 30 years later, as Dan has said earlier, thanks to a strategy combining wide acquisitions with internal growth, our sales will exceed $2 billion. That speaks volumes about the growth this company has enjoyed under an outstanding team that I am extremely proud of and of which many members are here with us today. We've defined our mission as follows. Powerful connections for our customers, genuine connections with our customers. And that goes to the heart of what we believe, and it rests on five fundamental values, which come from our founder, our father, commitment to service, teamwork, innovation, respect, and trust. And we strive to live up to them daily, wherever you are. By way of example, in 2005, for the seventh year out of the last ninth, Kojiko Connections, Connection won the highest customer service award presented by Service Quality Measurement Group as an operator for telecom in all of North America. So when we talk about customer service, we're actually serious about it. As you can see, Kojiko has a sound financial structure. It has exciting projects going forward and it is adapted to a communications world that has ramifications throughout the globe. Kojiko is looking at the future with confidence, and we think that we must continue to support Canadian-owned companies. And I strongly urge the various levels of government to take the appropriate measures to achieve that objective. I will talk more about these issues a little later in this presentation, which brings us to the topic of what we could do to help Canada become more competitive, 
what our country stands for, the, ro- the role that is ours to play in the, ro- in the world, and how to thrive in a world of unlimited interconnections and exchanges. A lot has been written about the, gro- the low growth levels currently prevailing in uh, developed economies. Some of this, of course, is unavoidably tied, linked to the transfer of wealth to developing countries, whether they're in Asia, India, China, South America, and eventually Africa, who aspire to the same standards of living that we've been enjoying for numerous decades. And that, of course, is perfectly normal and in the order of universal social justice. There's another component, however, that is ours to address, that we have means to improve. I'm talking, what I'm talking about here is the great Canadian research and development, which I will call innovation for the sake of discussion as we move forward, research and development and productivity deficits. On this subject as well, a lot has been written, which all of us have seen. And there's also an investment deficit, which has been deployed, deplored pardon me, by many think tanks and politicians. I hasten to add that I don't claim to be a specialist on the subject of research and development. Although our companies do make ample use of innovations that we create, innovations that others create by virtue of the nature of our operations. However, I can tell you a lot about capital investment. That we know a lot about because we make a lot. This year, the Kojiko Group of Companies will invest $460 million, or 60% of our operating cash flow. 30% will go to debt repayment, and 10% will go to dividend payments. The testimonial I'd like to share with you today centers on our innovation and productivity deficit, a direct result of underinvestment. This subject has been thoroughly developed in the course of the last few years, including by the Conference Board of Canada in its report of September 2015, as well as in the March 2006, March 2010, March 2010, and April, pardon me, 2011 reports by the Institute for Research and Public Policy. Every federal minister of industry that I have witnessed in my active career has been obsessed with this subject one way or another. Yet, we are not satisfied with the outcome, or should I say, lack thereof. Innovation, as we all know, is hard work, even more so when you strive to translate your efforts into obtaining patents which give you a competitive edge over your competitors, and allow you to bring in foreign exchange from countries who use these innovations. Increased productivity is also resource intensive. Let us say capital intensive. It's hard work and it requires focus and determination. Common to both of them is the need for capital, for investment. So there is the need for owners of capital to be willing and eager to support new ideas, and above all, take risks in the pursuit of returns. 
And with all due respect, I do ask you the question, are Canadian financial markets really up to it? To attempt to answer this vital question, I would like to summon two examples. The first one refers to the period extending about from 2000 to 2006. And I'm referring to what was then the income trust frenzy. I remember this period vividly for a number of reasons. I remember that investment professionals loved this form of organization where capital expenditures were encouraged to be as low as possible and so-called tax-free distributions as high as possible. The stock market rewarded companies that had chosen this form of organization through higher trading multiples. Operators were, in fact, encouraged not to invest in new ventures in order to return more cash to investors, the logic being that investors would diversify their portfolio as needed. But the frenzy was so intense that it betrayed the pervasively flawed logic behind investor expectations, that returns can be achieved easily without incurring risk. Now, anyone who's taken Finance 101 knows that it cannot be so. Yet the frenzy lived on until the then finance minister, James Flaherty, removed the tax advantage on October 31st, 2006. For companies like us, who invest a lot of money to better serve their customers, we said, rightfully so. But good Lord, was he ever vilified for having done so. Why is this story important to us? It is important because, in my opinion, it exemplifies an embedded bias in our investment psyche, the notion that superior returns can be achieved without taking on risk. Should we be surprised that we suffer from this innovation and productivity deficit? Until we change our point of view about the risk-return trade-off, we should not be surprised. Now let me make my way to my second example. A growing, prosperous economy needs many ingredients, key among them, demographic growth and exports. Many economists have clearly demonstrated the positive correlation between economic, economic growth and demographic growth, and they're usually positively correlated. In mature economies such as our own, cursed with low birth rates, the solution is immigration. Now, Canada and Australia have been leaders in welcoming immigrants. First-generation immigrants in Canada represent 22% of the Canadian population. And the greater Toronto region is a wonderful example of how this can be achieved harmoniously, a model for the world, I would say. Yet, when the migrant crisis developed in the Middle East four years ago, our country did everything that it could to look the other way and pretend it wasn't happening. Our leaders were instead encouraging us to consider our own little well-being and focus on saving a few hundred dollars on our tax returns. Thanks God we shook ourselves out of that apathy 
And now we are setting an example for the world to emulate of how a blessed, prosperous, democratic country like Canada can do its share and help resolve a planetary crisis and remedy its demographic deficit at the same time. This is not without its challenges, I know, but it's the right thing to do. And the right thing we did do in the late 70s when we welcomed some 70,000 Vietnamese boat people into our country, achieving huge benefits for them and for our country. And then there's the question of exports, whether of goods or services, and the rest of my text speaks to them more or less indifferently. Exports are what creates prosperity for a country. This is what we want more of as a rule. Yet, there's a lot of talk about the shrinking manufacturing infrastructure in Canada, which takes us, finally, to my second example. Here again, I will readily declare I'm not an expert on manufacturing, but we can all take notice of the Mittelstand model that is being used very successfully in Germany today and has made that country prosperous. I'm talking about the the thousands, many thousands of privately owned, family-controlled companies that thrive, innovate, invest, prosper, and export. The secret behind this? A culture of ownership and tax exemptions when a business is passed on to future generations. Now I know this last comment sounds terribly self-serving, but this is the the way the German model works. The The current Canadian fiscal regime actually encourages owners to sell their companies before they decease. Let me explain. Governments tax the presumed capital gains on the shares of family-controlled enterprises passed on to the children of the deceased founder at the level of close to 27%. Many times, the descendants are forced to sell to pay the tax or forced to sell part of the controlling stake. I will tell you today that this is not conducive to the strengthening of our industrial fabric and eventually causes Canada to lose head offices. The fiscal regime in this country must be changed. Now, I know that this point of view does not enjoy unanimous support. Yet family ownership does bring persistency and long-term vision and investment, and it helps build prosperity for a country. Family-controlled issuers often get very little credit for the unique value they provide to Canadian markets. As the Clarkson Center for Board Effectiveness pointed out in a study released in 2013 about the impact of family control on share price performance of large publicly listed Canadian firms from 1998 to 2012. They compare the performance of 23 family controlled companies to equivalent non-family counterparts and came to the conclusion that Canada's families have created tremendous value for their shareholders over the years, notwithstanding some disappointments in the group.
A recent study released in April of this year by the Ontario Group 5i research came to similar conclusions. Here in North America, a number of reputed institutional investors, such as the Caisse de Dépôt et Placement, or such as BlackRock, amongst others, have observed that we have become a nation of traders as opposed to a nation of owners. The whole financial chain of services is centered on trading and how a profit is generated in the process. I wish to tell you that this disposition is not in our economy's best interest. It leads to short-term benefits, but not to long-term benefits. We need to change corporate law in Canada to adopt provisions, certain provisions of Delaware law, to empower directors to resist automatic auctions when deemed appropriate. Building an industrial infrastructure is not about holding auctions to sell our inheritance. Investment horizons have to lengthen substantially, and yet investments do bear some risk, and mistakes can happen. That is what we call the risk-return trade-off, and it's normal and unavoidable. We at Kojiko are devoted to the ideal of building a strong, family-controlled, Montreal-based Canadian company, expanding its activities beyond our borders, and we have taken the appropriate measures to ensure that continues. There is something else we can do to increase our competitiveness. We could make basic economic courses compulsory at the high school level. The Canadian Foundation for Economic Education, presided by Gary Rabier, who is with us this afternoon, has developed substantial materials and has been working on this for decades. But, unfortunately, despite these efforts and the great success that the Centre, that the Foundation has been enjoying, these programs are not yet compulsory in schools, which means that the youth who probably most need it will probably never choose it and will not be exposed to how the wheels of economy function. Regardless of the challenges and problems we have or feel that we have, we Canadians are the most blessed people on earth in all respects. Our ancestors have built a strong parliamentary democracy built on the rule of law. The legislative, executive, judicial systems are well separated, and our sense of community is unequaled across the world in terms of what's in the best interest of the highest number of people. This brings to us a number of responsibilities in world affairs to do our share and help make the world better, more just, more livable. This is something we've forgotten in the last 10 years as we indulged in navel-gazing as a nation, retrenching, looking after our own little selves as if we weren't fully interconnected. Yet, our history is living testimony to a sense of duty that goes beyond our mere commercial interests. And this starts 
with caring about world issues and the importance of diplomatic relations. We may, and that's only normal, disagree with how some countries manage their affairs, yet we cannot hope to influence them if we do not engage in diplomatic relations with them. We once were respected as honest brokers, people who stood for what was right as opposed to blind alliances or self-interest. There is no reason why we could not, as a nation, recover this moral leadership and recover this position that has always been ours, siding with the oppressed when necessary to help correct injustice. The United Nations, despite all of its recognized imperfections, remains a focal point for international involvement. Let us, Canadians, contribute actively and sensibly in the deliberations of the United Nations to bring about a just world. Ladies and gentlemen, let us rediscover the Canada that is open, tolerant, multicultural, and generous, and the one that we love. Let us rediscover the Canada that is truly us. Thank you. Have a great day. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. O'Day, for those, uh, that journey to take us through what you're doing, what you have established, and to tying it into the future, which not only gives us a sense of your company, where it's going, but also provides a roadmap and a reference point for the rest of us in our day-to-day -day business as well. Thank you very much for that. We do have a few moments, and uh, Mr. O'Day has uh, generously uh, made some time and would welcome some questions if we have any from the audience. Our staff and our volunteers have mics if someone has a question, and uh, we will get a mic to you quickly. Anybody? Right here. Alan. There you go. Louis, it's great to see you uh, here in Toronto today, and, and uh, I'm inspired by uh, the, the, the comments you've made in our lifetime. There's not too many big companies going to come to Canada. We're going to have to grow them. What can the business community do more of, uh, better or differently, to, to lead this charge? Government really cannot do much, much more. What can yeah. business leaders like you do more of, yeah. and how can we inspire them to, to do well, that? Well, now you're dragging me out of my zone of comfort, <laughs> so I'm not sure I have the answer. but. Uh, my experience has been in the past that um, we do a lot as businesses to try to preserve our turf. But of course, if you want to attract other companies, you, you have to open up. And I'm not sure the regulatory regime is conducive to opening up. Uh, and probably our own self-interest doesn't make that easy. Now, this is a general statement. I am not a specialist on the subject. What I've shared with you today are my thoughts. I haven't really thought of that question, but that would be my initial reaction. 
I have a question in terms of your comments about, uh, again, back to leadership in this industry and what your business means to this country and also how we can use our platforms to advance this broader agenda, uh, social as well as economic. And I know you had made some comments on uh, Netflix, which were a little bit uh, out of sync with maybe some other voices and leaders in the industry. Yeah. And, uh, and you had an interesting perspective on, on how access to information uh, and to innovation should be paramount to particular economic or business interests. Can you well, tell us I, what I, 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 I'm some not sure I've, I've got it, that? but I'll try. Okay. Okay. So the issue was around Netflix. A number of players in Canada were making the observation that it should not be allowed to operate in Canada because it did not pay contributions to our Canadian programming funds, for example, the Canadian Media Fund. And that, and that of course, is a preoccupation that we all share. So, so I was in agreement with the concern, but I was not in agreement with the solution. Um, because the, you see, what happens is that things deteriorate, deteriorate over time. Currently, we have in the Quebec legislature something that will limit online uh, gaming um, if people are not uh, registered with the uh, with Lotto Quebec, and that of course is destined to bring more revenue to Lotto Quebec and balance the province's budget. But this is the problem with intervention. So you stop Netflix, maybe you stop the gaming companies. Right? Is that socially acceptable? <laughs> Who knows? But then what's the next thing you're going to stop? And then the next, and then the next. Where do you set the limits? We've set the limits as a society, not just Canadian, but as an uh, industrial world has set the limits around serious criminal offenses. That's where the limits have been set. If you try to encroach on them, other problems will happen. And you might find yourself in some, like some countries where, in fact, you can't really say what you think. And that, that's the reason. And we know where that leads. So that's always, when there's innovation and change, coming back to principle is always a good strategy. Thank you very much, Mr. O'Day. A real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Fred Mifflin, and I'm the president-elect of the Canadian Club. Monsieur O'Day, I want to thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Through your leadership, Kojiko has diversified to become a major player in the telecommunications market. You have always set your vision on growing strategically in markets where you can compete to win. It's also clear that you are a man of conviction and don't hesitate to express your views on economic and social issues that are thought-provoking. We appreciate the way you're using your leadership experience to demonstrate how business growth, innovation, risk, and corporate social responsibility can coexist to address societal needs. Thank you again. Please accept our best wishes for Kojiko's continued success.
thank you. I would just like to echo uh, Fred's comments. And there is no doubt today uh, we are better off for having heard the remarks of Mr. O'Day, both as a, as a reminder of the challenges we face and also an example of a path, of a path forward for us all to go out of our comfort zone and to take those leadership positions when we feel we need to. I would also now like to take an opportunity to thank Deloitte again for its sponsorship and support of today's event and Air Canada. Thank you very much. And on that note, I wish you a very, very uh, warm and, and great afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned. Good afternoon.